So we're talking about the Gospels, reading the Gospels. If you've been reading through the Bible reading plan, you should be up to the Gospels. Even if you're not, the Gospels are good to read. I went to a a seminar some years ago when I was a teacher and uh, and the main speaker who was an author, he'd written a few books and things like that. He was fairly well known at that particular point in time. Um, He said, uh, Pentecostals read the Old Testament, Evangelicals read the Epistles, we've got to get back to the Gospels. Now, on the, on the surface, that sounds interesting. But I'm here to tell you, I, I think the whole 66 books are God's word. And, and you can't afford to neglect any of them. So it's not like the Gospels are the superior part of the Bible. Uh, they need to be read reverently, and they need to be read carefully and intelligently and faithfully. But they're not like A-list Bible, and everything else is a bit substandard. Right, so we could think, ah, oh, well, you know, we've got a pretty good handle on the epistles, you know, on, on the gospels. We might think, yeah, I need help with wisdom, I need help with revelation. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John—they're pretty basic. Um, actually, every part of the Bible takes hard work, uh, and every part of the Bible we should expect to grow in. We should expect to grow in our ability to handle it better. So, in my very first year at Ridley College. Uh, at morning tea time one day three of the lecturers launched books that they'd just finished writing and in a couple of cases they'd written up their their PhD thesis so they'd been working on their doctorates and they'd written those up into a book and uh, one of them, a fellow called Doug McComiskey who was a New Testament lecturer his book is one I've looked at it and I don't understand it Uh, it's just too much for me uh, it's full of untranslated Greek. I'm sure it's an important book, but it's just it's too much for me. But this is what he said as he dedicated the book. He said, I give thanks to God uh, for the opportunity to work hard on the Gospel of Luke, a book which contains truths that a child can understand and depths so deep that no scholar will get to the bottom of. And that's the facts. Right? There are things in the Gospel of Luke that you'll see on the surface that even a child can understand, but there are things in there you go, whoa. So... He'd written this book about the literary patterns in the Gospel of Luke and as I say, it's too much for me. Uh, I'm sure it's important, I'm sure it's wonderful but so there's always more to get, there's always more to learn and grow in. So the first thing is we need to work out what is a Gospel. Um, So in the New Testament, now I haven't got printed notes but I'm very happy to send the PowerPoints to anybody who would like them. So if if you'd like to just drop me an email, I'll, I'll send them down. But in the New Testament, when you read the word Gospel... It only ever means the message of God's saving acts in his son. Right? So Jesus came, he taught God's word, he uh, revealed God through the miracles that he did, he revealed something about the kingdom, but he died, he was buried, he ascended, uh, he rose again and he ascended. Uh, that's the gospel. Um, so in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says... I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preach to you. So first of all, the gospel is a message. And it's the message that Paul says uh, he received, in which you stand and by which you're being saved. So it's a message that will save you if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. And here's his summary of the gospel. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So the first thing we need to know is that the gospel is a message and it's a message with specific content. Right? At its simplest, it's a message about the death of Christ for our sins, 
that he was buried, that he was raised. And so Paul says, I've taught you this, now I need to remind you. Right, but that's the gospel. So if somebody says to you, what's the gospel? Ah, oh, it's the message that Jesus died, was buried and was raised. According to the scriptures. That's important because the gospel is not some new thing. It's connected to what we now call the Old Testament. Jews don't call it the Old Testament. They call it the Bible. Uh, it's our Old Testament because we've got a new covenant. But, uh, but it, the, whole, the whole scripture is leading up to this extraordinary message. But one thing that gospel never means is book. It does not mean Matthew, Mark, Luke or John. So when we see a title like the gospel according to Mark, that wasn't original. None of the four gospels announce the name of the author. So you'll look in vain for it. Uh, so you've got to work it out from, from other things. So church tradition helps us, but none of them actually say, I, John, wrote this. Or um, So the, the titles were probably added late in the first century or early in the second century, and they're helpful because they, they help us work out you know, the perspectives of these different people. It's not the gospel by Mark. Uh, when we talk about the gospel according to Mark, what we mean is this is Mark's account of the gospel, the good news about Jesus who died, was buried and was raised again. Does that make sense? So this is Mark. This, so Mark says, hmm, there's a group of churches in Rome that need to hear the story of Jesus. I'll write the gospel. I'll write my understanding of the gospel according to the evidence that I've seen. So what is a gospel? Well, there's four accounts of Jesus' life and their teaching. They're probably given the name gospel because that's how Mark begins his. Now, Mark is usually believed to be the first of them. So they believe that Mark wrote first uh, and then the others came later. Usually people say John wrote last, but I just read an article this week that said John may have been first. So people don't know, and at this point we don't need to debate it, uh, but usually... <coughs> people say that Mark came first and Matthew and Luke used Mark as their essay plan and they added things that they'd learnt from other sources and expanded on the outline because Mark is the shortest and, and, and there's a lot of similarities, a lot of overlap between Matthew, Mark and Luke. So they're called the synoptic gospels. Synoptic means seen together. Um, and, but John is quite separate. He, t he talks about things that the others don't talk about he doesn't have parables. Uh, he talks about miracles that the others don't record. So there's significant differences between Matthew, Mark, Luke and, and, and John, right? Uh, we, we might think about that a bit later. But this is how Mark begins, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, now that's interesting because he doesn't tell us what it is yet, but he says, I'm telling you the gospel. And I think that means that the people he was writing to already knew what the gospel was. He didn't have to define it for them because they knew. Uh, so C.S. Lewis always has something useful to say and he was really helpful for me in getting my head around all this. So in his book Miracles, I'll tell you the background against which he's writing it. There are people who, like the lecturer that I was talking about who said, oh, we've got to get back to the Gospels. There have been some so-called Christians who say the Gospel is the essence of the Christian message the epistles are a construction on it. And there are some people who'd say Jesus brought the pure message of God and Paul corrupted it. So Paul is the guy that brought all that nasty stuff about women and homosexuals and all the stuff that we don't like. But Jesus was the good guy. He's the pure kernel. And Paul's given us this husk that we can 
do away with. Um, I've met people who, who say, oh, Paul, he's a misogynist. And so they... But no, he actually wrote God's word, right? And so Lewis is taking that idea on and he says, the resurrection and its consequences were the gospel or the good news which the Christians brought. What we call the gospels, the narratives of our Lord's life and death were composed later for the benefit of those who'd already accepted the gospel. They were in no sense the basis of Christianity. They were written for those already converted. The miracle of the resurrection and the theology of that miracle comes first. The biography comes later as a comment on it. Nothing could be more unhistorical than to pick out selected sayings of Christ from the Gospels and to regard them as the datum and all the rest as a construction on it. The first fact in the history of Christendom is a number of people who say that they have seen the resurrection. If they died without making anyone else believe this gospel, no gospels would ever have been written. Now that's really important, right? We would know nothing about Jesus at all if it wasn't for the resurrection. That's why I say to people, the resurrection is the reason I'm a Christian. Jesus would have just been another failure if he wasn't raised from the dead. He, would have had, he, he might have lived an interesting life. He might have even have done some miracles. But if he wasn't raised from the dead, no one would have had a reason to write a book about him. And so we'd know nothing about him. Right? But the Gospels were written after the epistles because the epistles were written to the people who had received the teaching and believed it. And now that the original witnesses were dying out, they said, we need a written record of the life of our Lord Jesus. And so that's why the Gospels were written. Now, is that, is that good so far? We got that? Right? Because that's really important, I think, to understand. Um, so just a little bit of a comparison. I read the Australian online every day. But when you read the Australian online, at the heading at the top, you'll see these headings, Nation, World, Business, Commentary, Sport and Arts. Some people believe that the Gospels are like the facts and the epistles are like opinions, like the commentary. And it's not that at all. All sections of the Bible are God's word. They're all inspired by God. Peter actually said that Paul was writing God's word and Peter was Jesus' credited apostle. So he says that, that Paul's writing God's word. The whole thing, all 66 books. Uh, so it's not that the, uh, the Gospels are the original uh, and the epistles are the commentary on it. Um, it's all God's word, every, every one of the 66 books. And I just want to throw this in because this is really important. I wish... Guy Mason had used this in the interview with Sunrise on, on Thursday morning, um, the city on a hill pastor. Um, because when David Koch says to him, oh, the Bible's an old book, I wished he'd said, yeah, but just because it's old doesn't mean it's stopped being true. Because there are some things that are just true. And if something's true, it's true now and it's true tomorrow. And it, it, Some things are just true. The Bible speaks about things that are true. But he says, oh, but not everybody believes every word of it. And there's other churches that have, you know, changed things. Yeah, fantastic. Um, but what I'd say to that is if, it, if parts of it aren't true, then ditch the lot. And so C.S. Lewis says, Christianity is, is a statement which, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. So we, did, we don't get to choose which bits of it we like. Either it's true and we accept it all or we just say forget it, right? Um, and, and so that's why our goal is to preach through the whole Bible because we regard it all as God's word. That's a great little statement. He, he's good at coming up with zingers, I think. Good old C.S. Lewis. 
So Mark was probably the earliest, but um, it may not have been the first written record of Jesus' life because Luke, in introducing his gospel, he says this is the method that he went about. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good also to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have the certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. So Luke, in starting his gospel, says, other people have written about Jesus, I'm going to write my version for you, Theophilus. So whether he's taking verbal reports and writing them down through interviews, or whether he's, he's got written collections of the sayings of Jesus, it's a bit hard to work out. But Mark was the first of, what, of the four Gospels that we've got, probably, but he may not have been the earliest writer to write things down about Jesus. Now, there's evidence for that in the New Testament itself. And so there were oral and, and, and written records about Jesus, uh, which were circulated at the time, but we have no record of them now, except that there's hints of them in the New Testament. So, for instance, Acts 20, verse 35, when Paul is in Ephesus speaking to the Ephesian elders, he says this, he's talking about himself and about the example he set them. He says, In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus how he himself said it is more blessed to give than receive. Now, we've all had, heard that sentence, haven't we? Right? We've all heard it's more blessed to give than receive. Which gospel's it in? It's not. It's not in Matthew, Mark, Luke or John. The only record we have of, the saying of, of that saying of Jesus is in Acts. Right? So that's an example of a saying of Jesus that comes from another source, other than one of the, the four what we call canonical gospels. Right? Um, so there were probably other written records going around. Um, so them, isn't, yep. isn't there some collection in uh, museums in, in, in Europe with John writing? Did they say that's the oldest writing ever? Yeah, um, that, that's called the Rylands Fragment, and it's the oldest... It's in the John Rylands Museum in Manchester in England, and it's a... It's a tiny bit of papyrus on which is written in Greek uh, a, a, a portion of John's Gospel. It's about that big uh, and it's, it's torn, but you can tell from the words that it's definitely a part of John. That's the earliest existing Bible manuscript that we have and it probably comes from very early in the 2nd century. Some people wonder if it came from late in the 1st century. Now, the interesting thing about this... Uh, it, it was found in Egypt, which means that John's Gospel was probably written in Ephesus, where John ended up, but a copy of it had made its way all the way to Egypt uh, by the early 2nd century. Right? And so that's, that's the oldest example of a Bible text that we have. It probably wasn't from John's hand, but it was a copy of a copy. Um, but that, that's the oldest. But there's, uh, there's a document... A very ancient copy of Mark, uh, which is being investigated, and until they've done all of their homework and research on it, they can't publish about it. But um, an American scholar has in his possession a very, very ancient document, uh, a, a version of the Gospel of Mark, which he says could come from the mid-first century, uh, which will be 
fascinating. I, every now and again I Google it just to see if there's any progress being made. But, yeah, the one you're talking about is a copy. It's a fragment of John. Yeah. Is that a question, Chris? Yep. Yeah, just on that one, I'm going to get the information from. Did Mark get a lot of his information? I don't know. Hang on, a bit louder for a deaf man. Yeah. Did Mark get a lot of his information or work with Peter? Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. So, we don't know anything about how the Gospels were written apart from Luke saying what he did in his prologue, but the evidence from the earliest Christians, and, and there was a lot of Christian writing done in the era after the, the Bible was finished, and so we've got very ancient sources that are very reliable, and a man called Irenaeus was an early Christian writer, and he wrote about... Uh, how the four Gospels came to us. And so he said that uh, Mark was working... With, now, we know this from the New Testament. Mark worked alongside Paul, uh, Peter, and Peter was in Rome. And, and so we believe that Mark took down Peter's reminiscences about Jesus or he recorded the preaching that Peter did about Jesus. And so Mark's Gospel is usually believed to be Peter's version of events. Yeah. Um, so you yeah. said at the outset that whether John was first or whatever, it's not important at this time. Why it's more the content that's important, not the order? Yeah, look, sometimes people like to make a name for themselves and just make trouble, I think. Uh, but, 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 yeah, look, I, I would, I just, I, I'd say don't worry yourself too much about it. Just just believe it and read it and, and get on with living it out. Uh, and when you do that, be confident that it's it's good, OK? But there are some people who have come up with theories and theories can gallop away if you're not careful. And so one of the theories is that Matthew, Mark and Luke depended on a document and they've each taken bits from it and that document is called Q. Q comes from the German for quell, which means who, right? Because no, now we've got no evidence of this document, but these scholars have said, well, look, there must be this document that became the birth parent to these three, and Mark's done it this way, and Luke's done it that way. It's just... It becomes very speculative. Now, there's, there's responsible scholars who are quite sure that Q existed, but it's just there's no evidence for it, so you can... You can get hung up on the wrong things, I think, and and forget what's plain and true, and you know, yeah, yeah. But but it comes down. They say, oh, you're, there's some people who would have put John in the middle of the second century, and so they say, well, if if it was written in the middle of the second century, it couldn't have been written by John because he would have been dead by then. So that's where the fragment that Pat's talking about is very interesting because it's early second century at latest which means it must have been written before that, which means it must have been written within the lifetime of someone who knew Jesus personally. Uh, but if it was written in the middle of the next century, then it's, it's written by someone who's not John. Um, and so there's all, all those sort of issues come into it. But um, is that... Am I just going in circles? I hope that's... Uh, anyway, this is, what, this is how Mark begins. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as, is, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. So how did you know that Isaiah preached the gospel? According to Mark, he did. Right? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as it is written in Isaiah. Right? Now, there's some people who say Isaiah is the fifth gospel. That's sort of a cute little saying, but uh, anyway. 
When Jesus began to preach, according to Mark, um, this is how he goes, Mark 1, 14 to 15, after John was arrested, Jesus came into the Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now at this point we're going, well, tell us what the gospel is, Mark. Clearly the people he's writing to already know. Right? Because they know their Old Testament. Right? So the gospel is going to have Old Testament content. Um, so the kingdom is at hand, which means it's almost arrived. And because of that, repentance and belief in the gospel are essential. That's the, the correct response to the teaching of Jesus. So then we need to ask ourselves, what's the kingdom? What's well, the coming of Jesus and the reign of God? So the gospel writers are saying, Jesus is the king of the kingdom you've been waiting for. And it's come now in him. Um, and all of those things were promised in the Old Testament. So when Jesus emerged, there was a lot of eschatological expectation. People were sure that the Messiah must be coming soon. Now, we, we know that from the writings of the time. People were quite sure that it must be soon that God was going to send the Messiah. Now, we've talked about Messiah before. It's a word we hear a lot, but you know it just means Christ, don't you? Or just means. Yeah. So Messiah is Hebrew, Christ is Greek. But what do the words actually mean? What, what does it mean? Anointed. Yeah, and so who, who gets anointed? The king. The king, right? It's, an, it's a nickname for the king. It's just another way of saying the king. And so, if you, so in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is Messiah. In the New Testament, when the Old Testament was, I mean, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, that word is Christ. So it's just a way of saying the anointed one, the king. So the Jews had returned from Babylonian exile, but they're still living under Roman occupation. So they're saying, when's the king coming? When's this king in the line of David going to come and put everything right and get rid of these rotten Romans? That's what they were looking for. So there's the Babylonian Empire, there's the Roman Empire, uh, took in little Israel way down there in the bottom right-hand corner. Um, uh, so the gospel is the message that the long-awaited Messiah has come, his name is Jesus, and in him all the hope of Israel has found its fulfilment. So Messiah means the anointed one or the king, um, and we see a picture of that in 1 Samuel 16 with the anointing of David. So kings were anointed, priests were also anointed, so oil's tipped on the head to say this person has been set aside for special service. Um, so Messiah is the Hebrew word, Christ is the Greek equivalent for it. But those words both mean anointed. So we could say um, David was Christed when, when he had the oil, if we were using Greek. That, that, that's what happened to him. Um, now, when Jesus was baptised, according to Mark chapter 1, so this is very early, you know the story of Jesus' baptism by John? And you know that a voice from heaven spoke. Very interesting what the voice from heaven says. Who, who would be speaking from heaven? God. That would be God, right? So a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. And we go, mm, yeah, that makes sense, right? Um, he's not just saying I'm a proud dad. Right? It's much more than that. He's actually quoting from the Bible. And so he's putting two important messianic quotes together there. So Psalm 2 talks about my son, because my son was the way God referred to Israel's king. Right? I hope this isn't too much to take in, but 
uh, the king is the son of God. It's a title of, of, of Israel's king, right? So you are my beloved son. Now that adds some information from Isaiah 42. What's Isaiah 42 about? The servant. So what's the Messiah is the king, but Isaiah 42 is about the servant, and the servant goes on and suffers and dies for Israel, doesn't he? So we're now learning the character of Jesus. He's going to be a king who serves and dies. And so the voice from heaven says, You are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. So you get Psalm 2, my son, Isaiah 42, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Right, so that's where you get beloved from. So God's announcing as Jesus is baptised, this is the one you've been waiting for, but he's more than you've been waiting for. He's a king and he's going to suffer. The Jews wanted a king who never suffered, which is why so many of them rejected him, because he didn't fit what they were expecting. And so what that means is Jesus is the divine son, the king, and he's also the spirit-filled servant that we read about in Isaiah 40-55. to So what's the gospel of the kingdom? Jesus comes and he preaches, repent and believe in the gospel. Uh, we can work it out from first principles. Let's do some homework on this, right? Uh, Isaiah 40 uses, it, when it was translated into Greek, the word gospel is used in the bit I've underlined, good news, right? So what is the good news? Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Now what is it? What's the good news? Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. What's the good news according to Isaiah 49? A bit loud, God. Yeah. Not a trick question. The words are on the screen. Behold your God. Behold your God. What does that mean? Look. God's coming. That's what Isaiah says the gospel is. Behold means look. Look carefully. Right? Look, God's coming. That's good news, isn't it? Right? That's the first announcement of good news in, in Isaiah. God's coming. Right? Would that have been good news to, to, the, to Judah, trapped in Babylon? Yeah. God's going to come and change it. Well, later on, Isaiah 52, which is one of the servant passages... What's the good news here? How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. They see the return of the Lord to Zion. The Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. What's the gospel according to Isaiah 52? What's the good news? Your God reigns. Isaiah 40, God's coming. Isaiah 52 God is reigning, right? Which means the Romans don't stand a chance, right? So the king's on the way. That's the good news. What was Jesus preaching? Same thing, except he's saying, I'm the king. So God has come. God has begun to reign through Jesus. That's the gospel. So when Luke tells his story of Jesus, Jesus begins his public ministry in Luke chapter 4, he goes to the synagogue in Nazareth, the town he wasn't born in but was raised in, and um, he was handed the scroll in the synagogue to read it, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. 
to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. So he's actually combining Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58. And what did Jesus say after he'd read those words? Anybody remember? Yeah. Today these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. So he's, he's actually, this is a bold statement. No wonder they wanted to kill him. Because here's this humble Galilean peasant saying, I'm the king. Now he's either right or wrong. I think he was right. But it's no wonder they wanted to kill him. He says, today these words, the words that Isaiah prophesied about the coming kingdom of God, Jesus says they've come true today. So that's the gospel. So what's the, um, Jesus asks his listeners to embrace him as the one who brings God's promised kingdom. And not only to embrace him as that one, but then to align himself with the program. Because like I said earlier on, you can't call Jesus Lord if you don't do what he says. That's the nature of being king. The king sets the rules in the kingdom. And if you want to live successfully in the kingdom, you better live by the king's rules. Now Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's good to live under Jesus' rules because they give you life. But nonetheless, we need to. So Jesus' miracles are important and they're signs that the kingdom's breaking in. What sort of things did he do? He gave sight to the blind. He helped lame people walk. He made deaf people hear. He raised one or two dead people. They're all the sorts of things Isaiah said would happen when the kingdom came. And Jesus gives little glimpses of it. Um, And he says in Matthew 12, if it's by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So in other words, the evil forces in the world, they had to submit to Jesus too. And he says these are signs that the kingdom has come. But the signs were not the kingdom itself. Jesus didn't heal all the sick or feed all the hungry, did he? Right? Is that significant? Could Jesus have fed everybody? Could he have healed everybody but he didn't because all of those things were signs they were like signposts saying Mafra this way except the sign says kingdom this way and so he's giving an indication Isaiah says when the kingdom comes in its fullness you can expect no more blind no more deaf no more lame and Jesus shows a little glimpse of that now um, it's really interesting in the book of Acts when Peter and John go to the temple, they find a man who's been sitting outside begging and it says he's been there 40 years. Now that's significant because that meant Jesus walked past him only a few weeks before. But he didn't heal everyone. But the healings he did do were to demonstrate that the kingdom was coming in his ministry. He wouldn't perform miracles to order, so in Luke 5 we read um, that the people want him to do more miracles and he just withdrew. Right uh, In John, when you read about him feeding the 5,000, um, they wanted to make him king. And I think what they really meant was, if you're a guy that can produce food like this, we'll never have to work again. Right? And he says, I'm not that kind of king. Um, uh, the, the scribes and the Pharisees pleaded with him for a sign, and he says, um, he says the only sign you'll get will be the sign of the prophet Jonah. So he, he wasn't a magician. He didn't do things to order. Um, when he was on trial, Herod came down and said, can you do something? You know, do some tricks, Jesus. Mm. Uh, but he, do- he doesn't work that way. He'd come as a different kind of Messiah. So in John 6, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. Um, in Matthew 21, 
deliberately he enters Jerusalem on a donkey. Right? A warrior king comes on a horse. Jesus came on a donkey to announce that he was not uh, the kind of king that they were looking for. So in John 18, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world, uh, but he did claim authority over the world's present ruler. Um, and so in Matthew 3, the scribes say he's possessed by Beelzebul, who's the prince of demons. Um, he casts out demons by the prince of demons, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. That's what Jesus says he's doing in his ministry. When he heals people, when he raises people from the dead, when he casts out demons, he's binding the strong man. Um, but he didn't, he didn't put an end to all demonic activity, but he demonstrated his superiority over it. And so in John 12, he says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now that's a challenging verse, isn't it? Because we'd like to say Jesus is the ruler of the world and is its true ruler, but there's an extent to which Satan is the world's current ruler and we're, in, we're operating in enemy territory. And that, he, Satan has strictly limited power, but he has some. Um, See you, Ian. See you, Janelle. Nice to see you again, Charlotte. Um, give our love to Darwin. Yeah. <laughs> now, the business of the kingdom, it, it, it's, it's complicated, not, and we're going to work up to this, and I've said this before, but we'll say it again. One of the most helpful concepts that I had to get my head around and, and Ridley College helped me a great deal was the kingdom has come and it's still coming. So we talk about the now and not yet of the kingdom. When Jesus came, he came and did things that could only be done by the king and they were signs but the kingdom has not come in its fullness. And so in Luke 17 when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he said the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed nor will they say look here it is or there for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now what that means is it's within your reach. You could touch it if you want to. Right? It's right here. So the Jesus coming is the coming of the kingdom. It could be entered immediately. Its, its power could be enjoyed in the present. But it has come and is still to come. It's now but not yet. Uh, technically we talk about how it's been inaugurated, but it's yet to be consummated. Right. So while people are still sick and dying, the kingdom has not come in its fullness. And so unless Jesus returns in our lifetime, all of us will die, won't we? Right? Because the kingdom has not come in its fullness. But when he comes, death will be no more. Now, when Jesus teaches the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, he leans very hard on the sort of ideas that you'll find in Isaiah 61. Um, because in Isaiah 61... Uh, He's anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, liberty of the captives, release of prisoners, the year of the Lord's favour and the day of the vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. That's this spirit-filled teacher that Isaiah 61 looks ahead to. These are all the things that Jesus teaches about in the Beatitudes. But as he teaches them, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the mourn, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And if you go to the last two, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Only the first and last Beatitudes are present tense. The rest of them are future. And so there is a blessing in the present time for people who become members of the kingdom, but many of those blessings will only be fully realised when the kingdom comes completely, when it's been consummated as opposed to inaugurated. How are we going so far? Right? So in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name, um, that's asking something that Ezekiel asked, that God would sanctify his great name among the nations. When we pray your kingdom come, we're requesting that God's rule be acknowledged now and at the end of the age. Right? We want God to reign everywhere. Where does God reign now? In here. Right? So we're all citizens of heaven because we bowed the knee to the Son of God, uh, Israel's Messiah, uh, has everybody? No, there's still a lot of people holding out and rebelling. Right? But one day, Jesus will be the unchallenged ruler of the new creation. Uh, so one day, heaven will come to earth. But in the meantime, the, citizen, the citizens of the kingdom, are, the, the, the territory God occupies is the heart, not physical territory. Now, when, when people say, oh, Australia was once a Christian country, it's never been a Christian country. Because there's always been people who have held out against the rule of God. Right? It's a country that's been profoundly influenced by Christianity, but it's never been a Christian country. Not even America's a Christian country. But they may not be fond of me saying that, but the thing is, it's a place where there's still an awful lot of rebellion against, against, the, against the, uh, the Lord Jesus. Um, so the kingdom... The idea of the reign of God being manifest in the, the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, that was the heart of Jesus' teaching and also of the apostles. So if you were to read those verses there, Luke 4, Matthew 10, Acts 1, 8 and 28, you'll realise that the kingdom of God is what they preached about. So what's the kingdom of God? Look, God's coming. Oh, look, God's going to reign. God's going to fix everything. There'll be no more oppression, there'll be no more illness, there'll be no more injury, there'll be no more death. No more sadness. That's what happens when the kingdom comes in its fullness. The kingdom has come and is still coming. And so in Jesus, God's eternal reign has invaded and defeated the evil forces behind the visible world. And that's all been through Jesus' preaching, his miracles, his death and resurrection. And so Jesus says that the kingdom will be consummated at his return. Now this is one of my favourite verses in the Bible, Matthew 19, 28. If you've got a Bible there, just turn it up just quickly. It's a, this is a ripper. This is one so good it's worth underlining. Um, and, and committing to memory so that you know where to find it. Uh, because this is the future. Matthew 19, 28. The future according to Jesus. Now you know the story of the rich young man. Uh, and he came and, and he said to Jesus, what, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus interrogates him a bit and he goes away disappointed. And so, um, and Jesus says, it's only going to be with difficulty that a, a rich man enters the kingdom of heaven. And so when the disciples, this is Matthew 19 at verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? So Peter's saying, We've given up everything. What's in it for us? This guy's gone away disappointed. We've stuck with you. 
What have we got to show for it? And so Jesus answers, look at this. Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So things are going to be reversed in the new situation. But the interesting thing there is that in verse 28, the new world. Now, if you've got a a Bible with footnotes, have a look to the bottom of the page. And in mine, it says um, Greek, in the regeneration. Have you got something like that? Right. So regeneration is the, is the word there. In fact, it's a word which is so rich, it's almost difficult to, to, to fully capture it in English. But the Greek word is palagenesia. Now, palin means again. What does genesia mean? Beginning. beginning. It's in the beginning again. It's in the new genesis. So Jesus says, Peter says, what's in it for us? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, in the new genesis, in the new beginning... In the beginning again. So what's the new world going to be? It's going to be as good as it was in the beginning. Right? So we need to go all the way back to the garden when things were very good. And that's how it's going to be. Is that exciting? Right? New world just doesn't quite... You know? But um, it's, it's all there. It says it in the, you've just got to read the footnotes. Uh, but it, it's a great, a great word. So... The kingdom will be consummated at Jesus' return in the new world and he's going to reign in righteousness, peace and joy for all humanity and then God's purposes will be fully consummated and the universe will be transformed. And all those things that we find so distressing now will be done away with. Now that's not wishful thinking. Um, That's grounded in the reality of the resurrection. Uh, Jesus is the first fruits of what we will all one day be. God raised Jesus from the dead and he will raise us. Right? And uh, Jesus can't die anymore, so if we're with someone who can't die anymore, we won't either. Um, anyway, just a, a bit of a flick through, just a, a couple of things before we finish. One of Jesus' chief teaching means was parables. We all know that, don't we? Right? Um, parables had two functions. They were meant to draw in people who were receiving the kingdom and add to the hardening of people who'd rejected it. So Jesus included... like He taught about the kingdom using figures of speech. And, so, and that's why he always said, to him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Right? Now you think about that for a moment. We're so used to it, us churchgoers, aren't we? Right? If I said, Mafra Community Church, if you have ears, you could, you, you'll hear. And some of you would say, of course we've got ears, or we wouldn't be able to hear. Everyone hears. Yeah, right. So there's two ways of hearing. You can let it go in there, or you can let it go in there and down to here. Right, so um, in Eugene Peterson's translation, The Message, he translates that little phrase, are you listening, really listening? So Jenny finds it very irritating if I'm playing the mandolin and she's trying to talk to me. She says, stop playing so you can hear. Uh, Right? Right. are you listening, really listening? 
So Jesus tells these stories. So the, the most famous of them is the sower. Um, uh, you know the Good News Bible, these marvellous illustrations by Annie Vallotton? Um, I grew up on the Good News Bible. So Jesus was teaching from the boat and he tells the story of a man who goes out and sows seed. All the people then knew about sowing seed because they all did it, right? So he goes and sows the seed and it ends up in four locations. Some ended up on a path. So it was pretty commonly the case that paths went through fields uh, and the, it didn't penetrate, so the birds of the air came and ate it all up. Uh, some fell on stony ground where it took root, but it didn't grow very well uh, because the, the, the roots couldn't grow deep enough. But some fell on fairly good soil, but it was surrounded by weeds and they choked it. Uh, and then some actually produced a harvest, right? So one sort of seed, four types of soils. You've got to do the maths here. So what's a parable? Well, a parable is a story with two levels of meaning. There's the obvious one, and then there's the one that is represented by symbols. And so we could say this seed equals that. So what does the seed represent? The good news, the word of God, the gospel, right? So the question is, what's going to happen to the gospel? Four reactions. Because there's four types of soil. Now, parables are a bit like looking at yourself in a mirror. They're a mirror in which to, to view reality. And so sometimes you can learn more about reality by saying this equals that. Right? Uh, one of the most famous parables in the Bible is the one that Nathan tells to David after David's committed adultery. And he tells him a story about a man who pinched a poor man's sheep. He goes, that's outrageous, we've got to kill him. And he says, you're the man, mm-hmm. Right? So he establishes a principle that David can get his head around, which is a much more powerful thing than coming to him and saying, King David, you've done a bad thing. David sentenced himself because he looked in the mirror. Um, So this parable is about mixed reactions to Jesus. Um, We know that he was met with hostility uh, by the the leaders. The crowds largely treated him with indifference unless he was feeding them. Uh, There was a very small number who trusted him but then, of course, there was one who betrayed him. So they're the, the main reactions to Jesus that we see in the stories. Uh, so the seed is the message about the kingdom. This is one of the few parables that he translated, but it helps us to get our head around all the rest of them. So the seed is the message about the kingdom, which falls in four different places. Uh, uh, version one, the path, means that the seed has not done what it should have done. Now, that would be bad, wouldn't it? So we'd all agree that... That's a bad outcome, right? A complete lack of penetration of the message. So Jesus explains that the rocky soil is short-lived enthusiasm that doesn't survive hardship. Now, the longer you've been in the faith, the more people you will know who have given every sign of being a believer for about five minutes, maybe even two years. And then when tough times come, they just chuck it in, right? We, we all know people like that. Oh, I won't believe in a God who... You know, and it's sad but true. So that, that's another reaction to Jesus. Um, a third one is the weedy soil. And Jesus says that uh, it's a representation that other things become more important. He says the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth have overtaken the kingdom. Um, but then the fourth soil is true understanding which leads to a harvest, a big bountiful harvest. So the challenge or the problem... There's only two eternal destinations, there's heaven or hell. But yet there's four reactions to Jesus that we've just seen here. 
So does that mean that the story represents three varieties of belief or three varieties of unbelief? Because the path is clearly bad and the harvest is clearly good. So what about the rocky soil and what about the weedy soil? Are they not quite good but at least okay? That's the challenge as we read the parable. Righto, let's think it through. Isaiah 55 says that Yahweh's word will always achieve its purpose. It will, it will accomplish what he purposes for it. And so the, as we read that story, we need to ask, will Jesus' seed achieve its purpose? And so let's think about it. What's a farmer's purpose in planting seed at all? What's that? Yeah, right. Um, so the farmer plants the stuff. When's he satisfied that his year's work has been okay? It, <laughs> right, you're jumping the gun. Now, I've been around enough farmers after church in, uh, you know, Japarit. Uh, I'd just stand there and listen, and they'd all talk about their crop. And so in May, they'd put it in. In July, they'd say, oh, it's, it's coming through, right? Oh, it's looking pretty good. And in October, they'd say, oh, it's turning colour. Uh, it's coming into head. Or what? Um, can't remember what came first. But, but, And then November, they're starting to get, well, we've got to service the machinery. You know, early December, they're starting to harvest it. Are they happy yet? No, because they could have a lightning strike. They could have a fire. They could have a plague of locusts come through. When's a farmer happy with his work? When he's stripping it. But even then, when it's in the silo. Right? No farmer would be happy without come two or three. Uh, seed that never t- that, that died quickly because it didn't put down roots or that got strangled by the weeds. No farmer would be happy with that. Now, I've met people who, who interpret that to say, oh, one's bad, four's great, but two and three are kind of okay. They're not. Jesus wants people who persevere. The harvest is the last day, and, and we need to persevere until the end and not be overtaken by the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth. So the art of the parable is the punchline. The true disciple, the true citizen of the kingdom will bear fruit. Jesus says that elsewhere. Um, the tree is known by its fruit, which means we need to be persevering and fruitful. Right, a couple of little things before we finish. Um, some things about the length of the Gospels. Um, if that little scale there represents 25,000 words, so 5,000 words, 10,000, right? Uh, Matthew is the first gospel in our collection. Some people still think it might have been the earliest one to be written. Other people don't, but like I say, uh, I went through this the other day and uh, in the ESV, when you take out all of the chapter headings and all of the little section things, there's 22,677 words in Matthew. In Mark, there's 14,634, so significantly shorter. Luke's the longest... It clocks in at 24,645 words. And John is sort of moderately lengthy, 18,910, right? So that's the length of each of those books just in terms of words. It's really interesting in terms of the priority of the message to see what they concentrate on. So if we think about the infancy or the birth stories about Jesus, um, and if we think about the last week of Jesus' life, I counted the number of words that are devoted to each of those. So Matthew uh, contains just a... He talks about the birth and the genealogy of Jesus. Um, Luke does as well. Mark and John are silent about it. They say nothing 
you don't learn anything about Christmas from Mark and John, right? So that's why come December we'll be back to Matthew and Luke again, you know, wise men and shepherds. That's all we got, right? Um, but on the last week, they all concentrate, right? So if I was writing a biography of anybody, I'd talk about their birth, wouldn't I? I'd talk about, I've just watched a, a, a series of documentaries on country music, uh, which I recommend, actually, uh, if you like country music. It's on SBS. Uh, very, very good. But it's fascinating to see the background of a lot of the people that became really famous because a lot of them started out dirt poor. They lived in one-room shacks with dirt floors and somehow they went on to become famous and have multiple divorces and <laughs> substance addictions but still write some good music. But fascinating. But if I was writing a story, I'd be telling how that, you know, about mum and dad and about where they came from. But only Matthew and Luke tell us about Jesus' early days. And Luke's the only one who breathes the word about anything beyond his birth. So Luke gives us a little bit of a snapshot of Jesus at the age of 12. But Mark and John say nothing, but they all tell us about his last week. But look at the proportion of each of the books that's devoted to one week in the life. Matthew, 35.2%. Uh, Mark, 37%. Luke, 225 A bit shorter than the others, but John, 42.7% of the entire document is devoted to Jesus last week, or the last week until he was taken up. You know? The, the average words and total of four books is 20,000. Is it? Good. I'm just... Yeah. You're a real economist. <laughs> That's very good. No, we're yeah. looking for yeah. yeah. Have you got time for a silly story? See how I've coloured my Bible in? I used to use this as a teaching aid for, for kids. Um, I inherited this Bible off my dad, and he coloured the gospel. He coloured the New Testament in black. Have I told you this before? No. Well, Dad, I don't know why he did it, but it just means that, you know, if the reading's from Matthew, you have to go like that, and you're pretty close, right? So Dad coloured that bit in black. And uh, so I was teaching some kids about baptism, and they said, why is your Bible black? And I thought, oh, I could use this. And so I coloured all the other sections in. So that's the Pentateuch, that's the, uh, the wisdom, uh, that's the history books, that's the, prophet, the, uh, the wisdom, and that's the prophets. So I coloured them all different ones, right? But anyway... Uh, I was teaching, uh, doing some teaching at St Paul's Grammar School. I was, I, when I was studying, I did some short-term contract work there and I was teaching Christian studies to grade three to six. And I had a grade five class who had a boy in it who'd been promoted from grade two to grade five. So he's a pretty sharp cookie. Um, and I'd been warned about this. Yeah, he's a pretty, pretty shrewd operator. So I was saying, now boys and girls, turn to page uh, 896. Yep, that's the end of the Old Testament, right? Yep, yep, yep. So I said, okay, turn over to page whatever. That's the end of the New Testament. See that? Only a quarter of the Bible is New Testament. Hand goes up. He says, 22%. He'd <laughs> work. I couldn't do that either. <laughs> Not bad. She should have been in grade three. Yeah, so, Mal, go to the top of the class. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll tell a story about you one day. <laughs> yeah. But can you like, what do the writers care about? You can see it right there. Um, so John starts, he's got 21 chapters. He starts the last week at chapter 12. It's pretty early on. So what's the focus of the book? Is it about Jesus' teaching and miracles? That's, people want to say, oh, I, I can really relate to Jesus. He's a wonderful teacher. 
But if that's all he was, no one would have written about him. People wrote about him because he paid for their sins with his blood and he rose again on the third day. That's why they wrote the Gospels, or what we call the Gospels. So that did me good to do that little exercise. I hope it is helpful to you. Um, I think we might leave it there. Um, uh, But that's the focus of the the book, uh, of each of the books. Um, There we go. What do you think about that? Vicky. Are you going to do acts? Uh, I could do a brief. I, I haven't got as much on acts, and we have done a little bit of that in church. And we're going to go back to we're going to finish the book of Acts next year. But the the, the thing that you need to remember about the book of Acts is that it's the sequel to Luke. Uh, and so Luke, in my Bible reading plan, I put Luke and Acts together uh, because I think that's how Luke meant them to be written. And so he starts off. With his dedic- Luke chapter 1, he dedicates his work to Theophilus and he says, I've carefully researched everything from the beginning. And so people believe that Luke probably interviewed Mary. So Luke followed Paul around and we know that Paul spent a fair bit of time in Caesarea. That's probably where Mary lived, we think. And, and so it's, uh, he gets a lot of the gear from Mary and that's why he's got so much information on those early days about her going to see her cousin Elizabeth. That's what we think. Right Now, again, Luke doesn't say, oh, Dr Luke wrote this. Uh, you have to kind of work it out. But whoever wrote Acts wrote Luke, and whoever wrote Acts was a friend of Paul's, uh, and Luke seems to be the best fit. Um, and so at the beginning of the book of Acts, he says, in my previous book, Theophilist, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so what that means is the book of Acts is what Jesus is continuing to do and teach, except he's not here anymore. He's continuing to teach that Jesus is continuing to do what he does and teach what he does through his apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we call the book the Acts of the Apostles, but you could probably just as equally talk about the Acts of the Risen Christ through the Holy Spirit by the Apostles. Uh, And the other thing to notice about the book of Acts is that Peter's the hero of about the first 13 chapters and Paul's the hero of the last, so he shifted his focus. But look... Just very quickly, um, chapter 1 to 7 in Jerusalem, chapter 8 to 12, Judea and Samaria, chapter 13 to 28, the ends of the earth. So it's like a a series of concentric rings. Starts in Jerusalem, goes to Judea, goes to Samaria, goes into the hinterland, and then it goes further into Asia and all the way to Rome. So the, the book of Acts expands. And at every point of major expansion, Luke actually points out he says, he's got these little dividing sayings, he says, and the gospel triumphed, or the gospel progressed. And at every point, he, he, he's, he's showing us the development of, of the ministry um, and, and the accommodation of, of the methods to the particular need of the place that they're going to. Um, and it, it's demonstrating that people who are not ethnically Jews are welcome in the kingdom and they're equally, you know, equally valid. They're not second division members of the kingdom because they're not Jews. Um, a, friend, a pastor friend of mine said to me once he had a lady in his congregation who got up in the middle of church and says, I'm twice blessed um, because she was English and a Christian, right? And, uh, and so being English, she said she was a member of the lost tribes of Israel so she had that as a blessing and and she was also a believer so twice blessed well one blessing's enough friends
<laughs> just being in Christ is as good as it gets. Um, and they haven't got the ashes. <laughs> no. <laughs> that's, that's a very helpful perspective. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so anyway, there we go. You got any other questions? Uh, yeah, Chris. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll email these out. If you want them, just let me know and I'll email. I might just put it on MCC and then everybody can get it if they want. But um, but all the C.S. Lewis stuff there is there. And uh, there's lots more that we could say. Like, if Ray was here, he'd want to talk about what they call the synoptic problem, uh, which is the fact that Matthew, Mark and Luke have things that are quite similar and sometimes they're a little bit different. And then John is different again. Uh, John has a different purpose. Maybe John was last and he knew that everybody already knew the synoptic gospel so he didn't think he needed to add to that. So he brought up new stories. Uh, not that he made them up, but he just included things. Yeah, John actually finishes his gospel by saying if all of the things that Jesus did were written down, I don't suppose all the world could hold all the books. Right, so there's plenty more that he did in those three years of ministry. And so all of the writers had to be selective. Uh, and, and but we believe that they've selected the good stuff for us. Yep. Rightio. Um, well, let's let's pray and uh, we'll commit the rest of our week to God. Heavenly Father, thanks again for your word and for the riches that it contains. Please help us to uh, to treasure it and through constant use to be those who are capable of handling uh, the true meat of your word. So uh, we thank you for Jesus. Uh, our King and our Redeemer, um, our Lord and our Saviour. We pray that you would help us to live lives that are worthy of his calling as uh, we return to those things that will occupy us until we meet again. Uh, And so we commit ourselves to your care and protection and we ask that you would watch over us and use us, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.